Hey everybody, and welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we are back in the studio. It feels kind of nice. It's, it's been, been a, while. a while. Yeah. Uh, we are going to answer more of your cycling and triathlon related questions that you've submitted at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Continue to do that, please. Uh, it's awesome. Getting a ton of questions. I didn't get through to, I wasn't able to actually sort through all the ones that we've gotten since we've taken a few weeks off from the normal routine. Uh, but I'll continue to sort through those and read through all of them. Uh, we appreciate you guys sending them in. We have a few things to cover uh, before we get into some of the questions, uh, takeaways from different things that have been going on. Uh, first of all, Nate, you and a lot of people actually that are, are watching this on YouTube or Facebook, which you can join us live. Usually it's every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific. This week it's on Wednesday. Uh, but you can join us on those channels live. It's uh, tons of fun. We get to answer some of the questions that you submit live. You can chime in and tell us how ridiculous we look in addition to how we sound. Uh, lots of fun stuff. He's, he's not joking. People do. <laughs> people do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't hold back. Uh, but you can join us on that. And if you tune into our YouTube channel, you've probably seen that we have some race analysis videos up. Uh, they're featuring you, Nate, or Pete. Yeah, so what we did is is Pete is kind of uh, analyzing my races. I have three of them up there. Uh, for those that don't know, Pete races for Team Cliff Bar. He's been yeah. on the podcast plenty of times. He's also one of our product managers yeah. here, but uh, he has a ton of experience at the pointy end of the country's fastest criterium. So he's a man to speak on tactics. Yes, he races... Uh, elite one at like the national level races. And then also does when he races UCI, it's a, as a pro mm -hmm. in that. So he's definitely legit. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so if you watch the races, uh, I do something's right, something's wrong. And it's really nice because he mm -hmm. tells what you should do. And so you can learn a ton of things from it. And then on his race, um, it's, it's kind of cool. Cause you can see how he raced the same course. Um, and it's totally different too in the P one twos versus the force that I was in. Yeah. So. And, and even then it's cool because Pete will talk about the things he did, the mistakes he made, yeah, he made and what mistakes he should too. do better. Cause that's just the nature of racing. No matter how much experience you accrue, everything else, you're never going to have an absolutely perfectly executed race. Yeah. Seldom if ever. Yep. You see that in the pros too. They said, Oh, I should have done this. Yeah. Like they made mistakes. Totally. Yeah. Happens all the time or else people wouldn't be hitting their handlebars as they cross the line. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, you can check those out. There are a ton of fun. We'll have more coming up actually, uh, from this weekend. Cause you and I are racing together. Nate. Yes. Um, racing against each other, sort of. Well, <laughs> what do you mean? Jonathan, I never race. Same division. Yeah. 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 Uh, same Nate, race, same time. Nate, you're a cat three now. I am cat three. We would insert golf claps if we were a radio show. Thank you. Uh, Congratulations, well done. Nate. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't sound very, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's pretty impressive, sweet. especially how you've done it. Well, yeah. And we're going to get to that. Um, and, and we'll get into the races and everything else. <laughs> um, Actually, let's just do that right now. Okay. Uh, so you raced uh, a road race on a Saturday and then three criteriums? Two criteriums. Two criteriums on the Sunday, so the day after that. Yep. Uh, you're going to have videos of these races yep. uh, where we can analyze the takeaways just like we were just talking about. So let's go through like the just the quick the quick takeaways, so yeah, because we don't need to do a whole people get more information later. With exactly, play play. For all yeah, okay. So we, we are we're at the line, and I first had my left foot clipped in, <laughs> got it, and I did that because just kidding. Um, so a road race, uh, basically, so here's the one takeaway from this there were two teams with like I don't know seven or eight riders in it, and this is okay. this is a cat four 35 plus seven or eight on each team, you're saying, yes, exactly, Pretty and then big. a bunch of mixed people, okay. And Break went up the road, and one team that had still, I think a lot of people had flats on that, which is another takeaway we should talk about, mm. had about seven people there. They did not um, chase back the breakaway. 
and I was sitting there waiting and I'm like, did they not have anybody in the break? They didn't, but it was, it's confusing, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it gets out of sight mm -hmm. and you don't know. And kids kind of look the same far away. Um, I think they were confused, but, and there was a crash before where someone broke their arm and you don't really know, <laughs> you know, yeah. who's there. Someone gets sure. a flat and you're like, is someone up the breakaway? Mm -hmm. But anyway, basically my mistake was I waited too long where I was like, uh, to a point I'm like, they're not going to pull it back. Cause in my heart, I was like, this team will definitely pull it back. Right. Is that, yeah. is that what you would think? It's a fair assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would be the, if you're following the book of tactics, so to speak, that would be the way to do it. Yeah. So I, I did a bridge, solo bridge to a breakaway. Cause they weren't pulling. So exactly. you went solo. Okay. Yep. So I took 15 minutes, which is a long solo oh. break. Yeah. 360 normalized in bridge. the drops, which is a PR for me in the drops. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, the breakaway went from six to five to three to two, and then I wanted a sprint finish. Ooh, so that was cool. Nice. Um, you spoiled the end for people. Yeah, well, <laughs> the how it happens, it's there's there's some, I did some good stuff and some bad stuff. So when we get the analysis up, it'll be good. And cool. I really want to have Pete's eye on that. How about the crits? Crits, um, four or five race. This is a good takeaway is, okay, so if you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's Bolts some are tricky, everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, before I say this, Peter Sagan at Paris-Roubaix, his Garmin bolt on yeah. his uh, no, on the, not just his Garmin bolt. No, his his, his stem, stem was coming off. Yes, <laughs> and he fixed it. Yeah. You ever see people in the Tour de France where their seat post slips and the people yep. come up? Yep. Okay, so they have pro mechanics. <laughs> I'm not a pro mechanic. Yeah. My Garmin, it's a I have a 10:30, and then below is a GoPro, and, and it's, it's on the K edge bar mount. Yep. Right? So it's kind of on either side, and it's it's in the Venge mount, so it's kind of like this single bolt that comes in. Oh um, yeah. I didn't think about that. It's in the Venge mount. So you really couldn't have tightened that. No. Yeah. You were done. Like, I mean, you, you well, can't tighten that because you have to take your handlebars out to do that. No, you can tighten it. Oh, you can. Yeah. But it's, it's underneath, right? You could, you could get to it. Oh quite yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it's, mm -hmm. it loosened up. Uh, here's a good takeaway. When you do a really bumpy road race, first you should tighten it before, but afterwards you should tighten it too, because yeah. the next day uh, with this crit that I did, uh, it also had some really bad pavement yeah. and that was enough to get it loose. Hmm. And this, th these things together is so, is so bad that if it were to come off um, and, the, and the screw was like halfway out and you couldn't screw it in by hand, um, people, someone could crash. Sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's, it's got a lot on there. You've got your big Garmin, you've got your GoPro hanging off the bottom. Yeah. yeah, and it's connected. It's connect. Yeah, so, so it's it's an whole. awkward shape. Maybe if it wasn't connected, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Some Loctite would be good on. Well, that. yes, we have some because we should do that. Of course, yeah. but yeah, mm -hmm. but I'm just saying. Um, yeah, that's it's a good takeaway. The bumpy roads, you know, these things have been fine for years, yeah. but then the bumpy road, not years, oh, but yeah. months. Yeah, and proper bottle cages are a big concern too. Totally. Snailing's no, notorious for that for losing bottles. Yeah, that, that can be. Pretty yeah, dangerous. it we feels, saw a ton of them. It feels yeah. like these days, bottle cage manufacturers are Come getting much better. Ways, yeah. You yeah. know, like, uh, I know everybody talks about the king cages <clears throat> and putting like grip tape on there and everything else, but I use the specialized rib cage. I've never once lost a bottle mm -hmm. ever. I use the Z cage on my mountain bike. I've never lost a bottle either. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, but yeah. on this at the, sorry to jump around, but at the yeah. last road race, so many bottles on the road yeah. and also so many flats. Um, uh, and I think too, in this day and age, going a little bit wider on a bumpy road. So I, I rode 28s on the road race mm -hmm. and then 26s on the crit, mm -hmm. just because you can run them at lower pressure and it feels better and go, go tubeless. I didn't see a single person flat who was tubeless, yeah. but really like someone in the break with three to go, he got a soft front or, um, three people in the breakaway when we were only down three people, one of the guys got a soft front tire from hitting a pothole. Oh. 
Yeah. And then, like, right? If he has tubeless, maybe, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So I'm jumping around. Here's back the, to the criterion. Back to the criterion. And the loosening mount thing. Yep. I stop, tighten it up. The uh, the official comes over and goes, hey, you know, this isn't a, a sanctioned mechanical or whatever. So... What the ruling is on that? Yeah, this is interesting. And, and, and before you get into this, we should explain like a free the whole free lap rule, or yeah. I should say, like in general, in criteriums, and you're doing this. Uh, if it happens before, is it five k to go? They, they always they, say they'll announce. They'll so, say this no, many no laps, free to laps to go with five to go. Yep. So they, they'll announce whether it's laps or distance, something like that. Like they'll say, like you know, you can't take a free lap from this point, and you get a free lap in criteriums if you have some sort of mechanical that is out of your control, meaning that like your tire gets slashed. Yeah, it's something that's not your fault. Yep. In other words, like if it's uh, if you glued a tubular incorrectly and it came off. It'd be, you know, that one's a little tricky to tell, but that's your fault. Yep. Uh, So it would not count for a free lap. Basically, if it's user error. Yep. Seat post slips does not count as a mechanical uh, crash. Handlebars slip. Yeah, handlebars are not tight. Like, you should totally stop and tighten them, but it does not count as a free lap. get a free lap back Another one that I've seen with this is dropped chains, and I've seen, and they'll get their chain jammed up. That one also should not be a situation where it counts and allows you to take a free lap. Mm. Um, So... Have you uh, seen it count though? Uh, I, I have seen it count. I have yes. seen it count, yeah. and I and it shouldn't, you know. Uh, but yeah, if your chain broke, for example, that would probably be something different. But then again, you, if your chain breaks, it's probably user error anyway. So I mean, like, it probably, gets tricky. But I don't think they would trace it back to that. I think they'd right. give you a pass, and that would be considered a mechanical, and you get free lap back in as long yeah. as you have an extra chain. Yes, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> true story. Yeah. Link it real quick. So you pulled over <clears> to fix this. Um, and then you talked and then the official was there. Yep. And he said, normally this doesn't count, but I'm going to let you back in. So you're four or five. I say I'm a four. It's like, okay, I'm going to let you back in. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking in my brain, uh, I didn't know about the, how the rule was anyways. And yeah. if you would have said, go off, I'd been like, ah, shoot, that's my fault. I was yeah. like, cool. I get to go back in, going back in bridge to a breakaway. And I won the race. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking I have my points for an upgrade. Hooray. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm trying to talk to the official saying if I could do the three race and see if then I could get points as a three, even though I haven't like officially submitted yet. Cause you're just like rip roaring and ready to go after winning. Yeah. You just want to take on exactly. more. After the three race, you're going to ask him for an upgrade to the P one two and exactly. you can do that. <laughs> so he, he, and he, he goes, well, actually, um, that doesn't count. You were a lap down. So you better do this next race, which is a 35 plus four or five oh. to go race. And I was like, Oh, I was yeah. such a bummer. Um, and, I, I was upset and I understand <laughs> what the ruling is, but the only thing I was upset about is what he shouldn't have let me back in Yeah. to, because I, I, I did affect the race by being in the breakaway and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what, what it's I, a tough I, one. On the one hand, I want to blame you for not knowing the rules, but on the other, when an official tells you this is the case, you got to go with what the official tells you. Right. I mean, it's their job to know the rules better than anybody. Yeah. Sure. There's definitely responsibility on both sides there. Sure. Should um, I have been pulled when I got into the breakaway? Yes. It, it, so shouldn't have been allowed in the breakaway. If yeah. he, it could be. Who knows when he made that decision to say that it wasn't that, that he shouldn't have let you back in. If it was because you won, and then he made that decision, but yeah, for sure. Like if he said something, and then like you got back into the race, and he immediately regretted it, yeah. I would for sure have pulled you because the point is. Uh, in some cases, if you race a criterium and you have a mechanical, mm-hmm. uh, and it's your fault and you can't take a free lap in some cases, usually if it's a not consequential race, 
uh, sometimes they'll say, you can go back in, but you cannot pass a single person. You have to sit at the back. Yeah, I've seen it too many times where they just get back in and, and mm-hmm. what comes of it comes of it. There's, yeah. no, there's no restriction. No one's really paying that close of attention, especially if you have a big field of riders. And yeah. if you're a cat five uh, on this race, it probably wouldn't. You just want to finish, right? Because you want the point. Right. Yeah. So if you're a five, I bet that in my mind, it would have made sense if he said, if you were a five, yeah, I'll let you back in just to give you the point. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? To like, uh, but on the four side of things, in my mind, I would have said, nope. Yeah, right. I could have put you back in, told you not to contest the finish. Um, I mean, maybe that would have been enough. I wouldn't have done know. it though, because I just wanted points. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's tricky, but I've, I've seen that, like I said, I've seen that happen, uh, at sea otter one year, a junior jammed his chain going up the climb Mm. and, uh, he dropped his chain because it's a famous section where you're going really hard. And then you have to drop down to your little ring, usually for this really steep climb. He did that. He dropped his chain, but he just kept pedaling and trying to figure it out. And he just created a Tetris mess down by his bottom bracket, uh, stopped, ended up getting it fixed. And then he basically, uh, waited around and then we came back through and he jumped back in. Mm. And when he jumped back in, he totally influenced the race. Uh, it was toward the end of the race and the kid ended up just attacking up that hard climb. And then he ended up, you know, really changing the the makeup of it. Wasn't good. This is another, um, a key point that I didn't know that the official told me a tip for next time is if you do have a mechanical, let's say if you have a soft tire, immediately go to the pit, because if you get dangled off the back, and then you go to the pit, they won't let you back in with the Peloton. Right. They'll so, put you back in with the group that you were in. And if you're off the back, yep. they'll put you off the back. Yep. So don't try to like save it mm-hmm. if it's if it's a mechanical that's right. Mm-hmm. And on this race too, I took off my bottle cages because I just asked uh, Chris Yu from Specialized on Strava, <laughs> um, so much information there. I said, how, how uh, many watts does a bottle cage without a bottle um, have add to drag. And, and it's, it's good to note that in this case, he knows the bike that we have, which, because I imagine this depends on the bike and that sort of stuff. It's at least been said that it can depend. So, but he, he's familiar with this because obviously they do a lot of testing with the bench so he can speak on this. I think he said on average, but he said, he said on average is about five Watts for the bottle and the cage. Mm -hmm. But if you take out the bottle, the cage is about half of that. So two and a half Watts. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking I have two cages. Still pretty significant. Yeah. I don't need to drink during a 45 minute crit, but my little, uh, my, my tool is connected to my bottle cage. Yeah. The multi-tool. Yep. So if I had, uh, if I had that on there, I could have done this while I was riding because the pace wasn't fast. I could just be off the back and kind of sure. you yeah. know, do it, That's which is yeah, yeah, a shame, a good but point. always carry your multi-tools. Yep. So anyways, uh, yeah, I didn't, I was, you know, back of the pack. We lapped a few people. So I was in last place, but yeah. that didn't count. Jumped into the next race. Should we leave that one as a, as a, cause that one's kind of interesting. No, cause that's how I got my cat three. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking it'd be good for people to see this one. They, they'll still see it, but, okay. uh, um, that one, I, I won that race too. Yeah. It was very chill. Yeah. This is okay. Tactics wise. Let's talk tactics. Okay. Very chill race. It's a small race. I think small races with like seven or maybe I think we had 11 people or something mm-hmm. can either be extremely hard or extremely easy. Yeah. It's kind of how it goes. Yeah. 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 So I've lined up plenty of times with the small field and known, I mean, in, in, at that point I knew who most of the riders were, so I knew it was going to be hard, but still I'm, I'm of the uh, opinion that when I line up with a small group, it's going to be a brutally fast, hard race. Yeah. <laughs> it almost always is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with, you know, a high concentration of riders that you know that are, you know, fast, that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So on this one, it being slow, I just was on the <laughs> um, back of the pack the whole time. Then on the last lap, they were they were still going like 20. Um, Weird. I, I learned this from, uh, I think everyone just was ready for the sprint. Yeah. Like okay. a cut, one guy did try to go... Um, 
tried to do some breaks, but he got pulled back each time. How long in duration was the race? 45 minutes. 45 minutes. They noodled around for, what, 40 of them? No, like the whole... That's, like 44? That's shameful. Yeah. That's shameful. I think my average yeah, power was like... Racing. That's not racing. Ride. Yeah, exactly. That's a group, a group ride. ride. <laughs> I, was, I was thankful because I was tired from the previous race. That's and this a coffee race was, ride, actually. It's not even a group ride. But okay, tactics-wise. So if it yeah. is slow like that, yeah. we learned from Pete. He's got a lot of videos on this. Um, he called in one of the videos, the sprinter's gap. But basically what I want to do is sprinting against the field early, get a gap mm-hmm. and do a flyer. Establish the momentum. Yep. Yes. So as the group's going 20 on a straightaway... I gap the field. So you drop back a bit. I drop back, right? It looks like I'm getting dropped. But then I start sprinting into the pack. And I actually did it wrong. I sprinted to the side. And I was like, no, I got to go into the pack. You sprint into the pack so you can get a draft. Not amongst the people, but meaning directly that you come behind. up directly behind. Exactly. So that <laughs> it's not like sprinting through. Just, <laughs> he's, through. he's not bowling for master's racers. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, that's a, that's a strategy. And that's, that can happen in any... It doesn't have to be the last lap. Anytime yeah. the field's going slow, you can do this. Yeah. And um, that made it so that when I was going past the field, uh, I was going like 33 and they're going 21. And that makes it extremely hard to- It's also a gentler, less wasteful way to wind up speed too. Because if you stay with that group and just spring out of it, you have to have a really mm-hmm. strong jump and yep. get on it really hard. Whereas you got to go back, wind it up gradually, carry a ton of speed by these guys, which is hugely discouraging. That, that's exactly right. Because I wanted a whole lap which was like a minute and 12 seconds or something. So I wanted a, a whole lap of energy. And if you mm. sprint really hard, it's hard to hold it for a minute. Oh, yeah. Your ability to maintain whatever power you have, if you started off really yeah. hard, just drops. I and mean, you're going to use some of your anaerobic stores. And, and if you jump like that, you're going to deplete a bunch of them in a hurry. Yeah. You can think of that uh, next time you're doing like three-minute intervals. Like yesterday, I did Spencer, uh, that one. And I was riding at 360 for three minutes, right? And I was thinking in my mind, like, this is way longer than the laps that I did at the last criterium I mm. raced. Why couldn't I hold 360 on those, you know, but clearly that's why it's because of the spikes and all the fatigue. So, um, if you can do something where you basically just pull up to whatever the wattage is roughly, you know, and then you stay there and that's enough to carry that speed around Mm. them. That's perfect. Yep. And then also I think in in this way, I, I didn't evenly pace this when you want to do this, you want to keep that separation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I still was going like as hard as I could without sprinting, uh, at the beginning because, (laughs) There was a reaction from the field, and you want to make sure you maintain that gap. Yeah. But after you, I don't know, especially on the last lap, if you go through and you maintain that gap, people start to give up. Because yeah. what they do is they say, we talk about it internally, the sprinter, I, I don't know if it's the name, but the sprinter's dilemma of, yeah. if I pull this person back on the last lap, I'm not going to be able to sprint, left? Yep. Yeah. and I'll get last. So if you have teammates, the strategy's it's a lot harder, right? Mm-hmm. Because yep. a teammate can burn themselves out, and then a fresh person comes by you. But if everyone's racing for themselves, which happens a lot in the lower categories, Mm -hmm. or they're not a coordinated team, which happens a lot in the lower categories. Um, If you can maintain that gap, like after half a lap, they gave up. Think of that. I mean, we're in classic season right now. Uh, You can think of certain races where you have sprinters at the front without teams. That happens a ton in classics races versus these one-day classics versus something like Grand Tours, where in Grand Tours, where you have three weeks of racing, a lot of the time the, the sprint teams are allowed. The pace is such that it allows the whole team to be up there toward the end or a good portion of the team. But in classics racing, it's not quite like it's that many times. Down. You don't have full sprint trains. Yep. So you have sprinters, and it's just down to them. And when you have a person take a flyer like we saw, um, geez, at, at Newsblad, when you Bob know, Youngles. 
right <laughs> that was that was Kernan Russell's Kernan but oh yes uh, yeah, yeah so Steve R when he took off yep he it, took off with what was it uh it was a number of it was a few Ks to go maybe he still had like 15 no. if I remember correctly no, no it wasn't it was, it was that close. long mixing the two races up yeah yeah, yeah yeah it was but it was he went and he basically put the ball into the court of those that were trying to sprint for the finish. Everyone was yep. counting on that. Yeah, that's right. And he ended up doing this same exact thing. It's yeah. a it's a great tactic. That was far more strategic. Yes. Youngles yeah. just jumped away with 15K to go and gutted it out because yeah. he was by far the strongest yeah. rider. Yeah, Youngles looked like he was racing. <clears throat> not, and, and this is in no this is in no ways or in no ways is this meant to be like a detriment to the others. But he it looked like he was racing with a bunch of cat fours because of how day, yeah. fit he or yeah. how fast he was. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. To, to the other race, we're jumping around a lot. Sorry, but uh, with yeah. Steve Barr, yeah. um, so GVA was there, yeah. Greg Van Avermaet. Um, yeah. And it's, and he it's, was the strongest in that group. He's the strongest group. You can and tell. he wasn't he had just covered somebody and he couldn't cover Stybar's break. But yep. then everyone else didn't if they covered it, they know that GVA would have won. Totally. So yeah. this if you can put your if you can be the attacker, this is why people counterattack, right? Yep. Because if uh and, and Pete says this all the time, if you can get the field, especially when it's close to like just wait a couple seconds and yeah. look at each other. Yeah. The gap is in so big. That moment's hesitation can be all that that breakaway rider needs. That's all it needs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exciting. It makes me want to race more. I know. Well, it's we're going to race this weekend. Um, you, so it's actually the same course that we did. <clears throat> if you look at the race analysis videos, it's the same course, or it should be similar to the same course. Uh, but it's actually, um, we'll see if it's exactly the same. It should be different just because of the fact that it's later season. It's not the first race of the season for most people. Uh, I am going into that race with very different goals than you. Uh, you're chasing points. And for me, I have two key mountain bike races in the following weekends. So I'm going out for, uh, I, I want to test the sort of fitness that I'll need for those sort of events, um, and go in and kind of em emulate that sort of thing. So I don't want to give away too much though, because we, no, we show learned, up, man, we everybody, show up these races and everybody listens to the podcast. I mean, not every, give not, away your strategy. Someone's going to pick up. Not that. everybody, but there's a couple of people who do. And then they a say, lot. and then I know, but, uh, <laughs> It makes it more difficult. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, I was. Uh, somebody said when I went on a on a flyer, somebody said let him dangle, and then there were a bunch of people in the pack that said no because it's Jonathan from the podcast, so they didn't let that happen. So it's changing. So yeah, we can't really race anonymously. Oh, the price of fame. <laughs> Real tough. Uh, let's get into Andrew's question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's like a whole uh, uh, yeah. Instagram account. There's a lot of memes around all this right now. Um, uh, let's get into Andrew's question. He says, I'm new to trainer road and structure training in general. I have a question about how to approach early season weekend races during a mid volume two sweet spot base phase. Uh, I've raced in sweet spot base a ton. I'm sure you have Chad. I'm yeah, sure you sure. have Nate. I, I did. Still, I won all those races. That's the beauty of it. Yep. It's, yeah. it's, it's built that way. Big question from people all the time is should I race if I'm still in sweet spot base? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So he says, if I have a race on a Sunday, what would be the best approach for Saturday? My upcoming Saturday rides are Clark, Carpathian Peak plus two, and Mary Austin minus one. So we'll go over. They're hefty rides. Yes, yeah, they're not they're not easy ones. Uh, Carpathian Peak is over unders. Mary Austin, I believe, so is steps. Those are the ones that step up. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, Clark begins with a sprint, and then I think it settles in at uh, just below threshold. Yeah, yeah. So hard hard rides, right? He says, would it be wise to stick to the plan and race Sunday on tired legs since the races are lower priority early season events, or should I pick a less intense workout? 
Yeah, we can all weigh in on this because we all have mm-hmm. stuff to contribute, but there's there's so much to consider. Um, <clears throat> first off, I don't want to d- dissuade anybody from carrying some fatigue into a race. It's not the worst thing. And, and not to go back to the – or beat the classics to death or the the Flanders classics in particular from last weekend, yeah. Bob Youngles, he raced Saturday and then he went and killed it on Sunday. <laughs> so, so that fatigue – Maybe not fatigue. Maybe that actually sharpened him up, got, got him in tune with what it's going to feel like to hurt that bad. And he, he also got to see what his fitness was like relative to the, the most important riders. So mm. it, it, it's not something you should simply, you know, uh, avoid simply because it doesn't sound right. So I'm not going to do that. Absolutely. And, and if you're going to be the type of racer like Nate just described, he had a, had a road race on Saturday and a few races on Sunday, but maybe it was just one race on a Sunday, but it's really common for category racers to have weekend races mm-hmm. where they're racing both days. Mm-hmm. And, and don't just automatically assume you're not going to be sharp for that second day's race. Um, a lot of racers become sharper because of that first day's race, regardless of how it goes. That's, that's what I've noticed personally, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a line where I Absolutely. suddenly become sure. not so fresh, <laughs> but like, uh, I've noticed that if I have like a two, three hour sort of race, something like that, uh, anything over 90 minutes, then the next day for me personally, I can expect some sort of a decrease. That's just for me. Yeah. And you also have to consider what sort of fatigue, you know, what sort of training stress you're carrying into the weekend too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you've buried yourself and, and, and the weekend is already a daunting affair or a daunting uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. Then two races is probably a bit unrealistic, at least if you want to perform well in them. If you're just yeah. looking to accumulate training stress, then I wouldn't worry about anything. I'd do both of them with without any any concerns. Yeah, I feel like it all kind of boils down to the priority that you have on the well, races, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's the next one of the next points is that how important are these early season races? Mm-hmm. Most likely you want to go out there and test your fitness. You want to keep accumulating that, tra- uh, that training stress. You want to get some race-specific stress, see how you stack up against everyone else. There's a lot of things to be garnered from these early season races that aren't necessarily results oriented. Yeah. That's, I mean, on for, uh, for me, that's what 24 hours in the old Pueblo was. I knew that I was going to get an hour roughly each time and it was going to be full race pace. Like there wasn't going to be a warm up and cool down. It was like just very specific stress. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was looking for in that, you know, rather than that, uh, anything in particular, this weekend's criterium, same thing. Um, I know that Benelli is going to be a really punchy sort of a race, right? So a criterium is a great opportunity sure. to go in not look at anything like that. And because of that, I'm actually, I'm not tapering at all. I'm not adjusting my workouts. Um, I'm doing the same thing that I usually do before every race, which I have a pre race day workout that I usually do, which these is races are very much planned into your training schedule. Yep. yep. They're all laid into my plan and it's a basin minus four, or depending on how I'm feeling, I might do basin minus five, which that's a progressive ramping, uh, mm-hmm. interval set. Uh, and you'll have either three or four of them, depending if you do the 30 or 45 minute one short and they're stretched out uh, in terms of recovery between them yep. separated nicely. And they let you ex- explore that whole range of how <laughs> explore. <laughs> it's a kind way to put Experience. it. It's a painful yeah. exploration. But yeah. yeah. Um, it lets you explain, explore kind of that whole range. And that's how I kind of like to, uh, with these races that are lower priority, I always have that race, even on a higher priority race. I always do that workout beforehand, but on lower priority races, I don't make any adjustments. And I look at those races just as training and I just drive on through. Yeah, so just be clear on what you're after. Mm-hmm. The um, I think it's like different levels of riders too. I think as a newer rider, um, you have a mental block about riding hard back to back. Yeah, you think that it point. that it can't happen. Um, as you, uh, not that I know, but the, the, I, I know from experience just hanging out with higher level riders. There's, they have, they have, there's like no fear at all doing races back to back. And maybe if it's a national championship, they place. won't go back to back. But sometimes. Uh, they do sometimes. Yeah, yeah they do. Uh, with, with, especially if they try to go to a different, a lower mm-hmm. age category. So 
what I would say is um, just what you guys said about priorities, but also about building fitness during race season, um, especially if you're in mid volume two on the weekends, those rides can be, you know, they're both over 100 TSS usually. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes these races can be like 50 TSS or 60 TSS. Yeah. You yeah. can shortchange yourself. And so you take a day off. And then you do a 60 TS one, TSS one, and then it, it your overall yeah. volume starts to lower. Yeah. And it can be very hard then to build your fitness. Yeah, you can almost race yourself out of shape. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I know. A, that's, a, that's a really good, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. So yeah. there's, I, re, back in the day, and very controversial figure, but Lance Armstrong, what he used to do, I, I read some of his training stuff, and after a race, he'd go do a, like a 60 mile bike ride because the race itself wasn't also enough stress as his normal weekend. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's also the thought of, you guys probably heard of it, you train hard and race easy, where your weekend training is actually more stress than a, than a race. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, Chad, right, that, yeah. that's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can get sometimes as a newer rider where the weekend races are so much harder than your training, and then it's you really do need to take that day off. Yeah. So I would say look at that and see, is this, is this going to be – bigger than a normal weekend or less. Yeah. And if you can put those together, if you're, if you're so in, in, in this situation, I would totally do that Saturday ride, see how your body responds. Mm -hmm. You're going to be more fit months from now. And then as you do have those double day weekends, you're going to have the confidence to come in and say, yeah. I can do this. This is no big yeah, deal. It's just more understanding of you to fold into your self-knowledge, yeah. you know, how, how you deal with um, in this case, back-to-back -back days of pretty high-level stress. And Chad, I'm sure you've had situations in stage races where you have back-to-back -back days, and you know that the Saturday will compromise your performance on Sunday if you don't race it a certain way. I'm sure you've had a situation like that where you've had to hold back. Yeah, I don't know if I got to look at it that way. I mean, I, I only got to dictate so much, even in the mm -hmm. races I did really well in. It was still very much up to the other riders and, and the tactics that they played out. Right. But yeah, I, yeah I'm should I have decided to just sit in and kind of noodle through a ride, I might not have had the sharpness or the mm -hmm. the willingness to suffer that I did have the next day. Yeah. But often enough, it wasn't left up to me. It's all relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only, right? If only it was up to us. I find that, like you said, Nate, with depending on experience level, if you're racing four, five, three, that sort of stuff, they really probably aren't too big of days that you're doing. Even if you have something like a stage race, I'm thinking, where you might have days... Yeah. Cause I can see the same concern arising when you have those, like we talked about those back-to-back -back days, whether it's a stage race or whether you're making your own <clears throat> stage race of sorts. Yeah. And it's actually an effective training mechanism too. I mean, mm -hmm. you can do this during the week, regardless of, of your racing schedule. You can have, you can block, say, say you have Tuesday and Thursday intervals with a Wednesday, easy day or rest day. You can put those together, do a Tuesday, mm -hmm. Wednesday, and basically simulate this very same thing. See how you mm -hmm. deal with that stress. Also get that, that, uh, high level of stress and then give yourself a day or two to recover from it and see how you rebound from that. Cause often enough that day on day off strategy works for a while. And then when it doesn't, one of the ways you can mix up your training is to block those two workouts together. See how that goes for a little while. Yeah. One thing I really wish is that, uh, I'd be able to rate as a cat three, a lot of the time, like sometimes you can race with a P one, two, three. That's awesome. Uh, I would love to do that. But like this weekend, for example, is a little frustrating to me because I'm driving over the hill for only one race. Yeah. Um, and it not being master's age yet, I can't, you know, race a master's race or anything else like that too. So, uh, it would be nice to have uh, a situation where I could add more stress onto the weekend, but in Andrew's case, it sounds like, uh, you've got the race that you just have to focus on. I would really just train right through it. Yeah. And not worry about it. Or no, I want to touch on something else you guys said was the, the tactic. So if you have back-to-back -back races mm -hmm. or multiple races during the day, well, maybe that first race or maybe the, maybe the last race, you're not 
starting the breakaway because that is sure. in your control. Oh yeah, sure. Like you could you sit in and how hard uh, you throttle yourself is. Yeah, I mean you can Some, figure out ways. Something interesting with that too is if you start the first race with one tactic and you are marked in any way because of your performance yeah, in that race, it's great to go into the next race with like, well, I was planning on racing that one smooth and it worked out. Now this next one I'm planning on racing aggressively and that kind of flips things on its head too in terms of how your competition can judge you and mm -hmm. understand what you're going to do. So uh, I've had uh, stage races where we have two races in one day, a circuit race and then a criterium. Mm -hmm. And with the circuit race, <clears throat> I just planned to, my basic goal was just to always stick around fifth wheel and just kind of stay there, but mm -hmm. not chase anything. It ended up working out really well in a finish. And in the criterium, I was like all guns blazing, like wide open, changed my tactic. It was helpful, I think, in that regard. So it's, it's also worth mentioning, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that you also have to consider what that race is too. So if you have a five hour, well, at this, I don't know what your category is. I'm not mentioned. Lower categories, you're probably not going to have super long races on Sunday. But if you do, and you know the race itself is going to be hugely fatiguing, then carrying ample fatigue into it might not be the best idea. Mm -hmm. But if you know you're a cat four, five, three race, or even you know you're just going to do a Sunday criterium or a Sunday two hour road race, then a bit of fatigue. It yeah. would, would, would be different than knowing you're going into something that's going to be far more taxing, especially with respect to what's coming up the following week. I mean, we're, you can really bury yourself. We're kind of beating a dead horse here, but also you, I feel like you kind of know too, how you stack up inside of your category. Hmm. So if you know, like already you're barely hanging on and you're like getting tailed off and all these, uh, sure. lines and just yeah. going on, yeah, that's a good point. Then I wouldn't be adding that extra Saturday ride yes. just to get kicked off the back right, right. away in the Sunday mm -hmm. race. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> if you're hanging well. Like, let's think about the long picture is low priority race totally and do it. So you don't have to ride solo for yep, a whole long sure. time. Uh, the final point that I'm going to add to this is I find that racing in the base season like this and kind of like training through your races is a really good complement to, it's a good preparation for the build phase. Hmm. It's a good preparation for the more, um, you know, the more demanding workouts, but then also the races of higher priority that are bound to come up, uh, shortly. I, I think that racing during the base phase is a great idea. Yeah, and if you yeah. didn't hear me say it earlier, these these uh, sweet spot base training plans are devised specifically for the the early season racers. I mean, mm -hmm. th this is these plans are, work on an assumption that you want fitness pretty quickly, not mm -hmm. a, not a traditional base approach where you're going to take 12 weeks to establish base fitness and then you're going to start to build on that. Rather, you're building fitness a couple weeks in, so four mm -hmm. or five weeks in, you're probably ready to go out there and like we talk, talked about before, do a bunch of sweet spot work. You're not going to get tailed off the back. Right. So in any case, you're going to get to hang in there, experience race speed, take corners at speed, get used to being in the group again, all those things that come with actually racing. Yep. Steve's question. He says, what are your thoughts on the impact of using a nice high end carbon bike on a trainer? I'm lucky enough to have just purchased an S work Venge S works Venge ETAP version. Ooh, that's fancy. He probably got the new ETAP version. <laughs> probably even fancier than ours. He says, and I'm contemplating whether or not I should be using it on my 2018 kicker. I've been told that the, that the torque you put on a frame, particularly at high power outputs, when it's hooked up to a direct drive trainer can potentially be detrimental long-term to the health of that frame. Do you have a view on this? And he says, should I consider using a low end titanium bike with the same fit measurements for trainer rides instead? Uh, <laughs> this is a, this is a common, I would call it a misunderstanding. Well, I've worried about this since the first day I've had of a trainer. course. Yeah. Same yeah. Um, okay. So experience with this one is uh, I've never met someone personally who's had a problem unless if you have a quick release and you have like, uh, this happened actually on one of my bikes with a, uh, it didn't break, but I saw this problem. You have something like a Kirk kinetic road machine or something with, uh, where it's mounted. Pretty much all of them are, uh, yeah. that, that are wheel on the cups that come on, make sure the cups don't 
um, get jammed into your frame. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about the cups of the you trainer. Never touch the frame. Yeah, they, yeah, you should be using a skewer, and you can get kinetic skewers, and they work for almost every trainer I've seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but many times, if you buy the trainer, it will come with a skewer, so use that one. But it, it, those cups have little cutouts because they want to to go over that skewer a certain amount to actually get leverage and hold skewer, the bike, but not touch the frame. Yep. yep. And you don't want them to go too deep. And yeah. if you have a quick release that's very small, like let's mm-hmm. say you go to a race warm up and you've got your nice arrow quick release, mm-hmm. but then the cups come in and they get pressed against your frame. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, yeah you don't it, want that. Absolutely damage. That them. would be bad. Yeah. Um, the other part, the other tip is don't be sprinting like full on. I, you probably can. You can't put a, bu- a bunch of body English into a fixed fixed frame or a frame that's effectively fixed to the ground. Sure. It's yeah. risky. Sure. Well, yeah, why I do mean, that? Yeah. Just go outside and save start. that stuff. If you really want to get aggressive with your sprinting, save it for the outdoors. Yeah. The I, I've I've also I'm in the same boat. Never met anybody that's actually broken one like this. The one thing that I would have to say on this is that people misunderstand the stress that they put their under uh, their bike under when they're riding it. Right? Like they mm-hmm. think that it's like it never goes under any stress, but now since it's fixed, it's a ton of stress. Yeah, but sure. think of the potholes you hit, and think of everything else that you hit. Uh, firstly, your frames are carbon frames are meant to flex in specific ways. Uh, they're not as strong perhaps against impact, but they're extremely strong in other ways. I think people sell carbon short on being more fragile than it actually is in a lot of respects. And the direct drive trainers give you a little more play too. I mean, uh-huh. the, the trainer itself can waffle side to side if your body moves, whereas yep. with a fixed trainer, and I, the only time I've ever seen a frame broken is when I taught computer trainer classes and the computer trainers were actually bolted to a platform. Yeah. So that they could not move. Right. So if someone rode poorly, there was no forgiveness whatsoever. Yeah. So, but that, you know, live and learn. We, we don't do that anymore. Right. I think that the, the, the big point that I'm getting at here with this is the fact that you think that putting the bike in the trainer is bad. If there's metal pressing into the frame where it shouldn't be pressing, that's bad. But otherwise, and once again, unless you're genuinely thrashing around, like you're trying to sprint and the trainer's flopping all over the place, I don't think it's going to be a problem. I mean, look at a uh, GP llama, the YouTube channel of, of Shane Miller. Uh, he's the, the tech guy on all things trainers, but then he also, it's a, an extremely, uh, proficient rider and time trialist as well, but he genuinely tries to like break trainers. That's like anytime they get a new trainer, that's his main goal is really? to try to break the trainer. Yeah. And, uh, he doesn't break bikes when he does that. So it's, it's something that's, um, I think it's probably overestimated. A lot of people say, I'm going to keep my old bike on the trainer. In my experience, that's absolutely not necessary. I can understand if you want to do that, sure. Um, but it's absolutely not a necessity. I I mean, I've, yeah, clamped all sorts of bikes and done all sorts of stuff. So Chad's taking his jacket off. <laughs> Looking good, Chad. It's getting it's real. <laughs> getting real over here. Um, so if you do have something like that, don't. I, I would say don't worry about it. Uh, you'll mm. see that there are a lot of like... Uh, uh, bike manufacturers will say that like it voids a warranty. And a lot of that is just because they, in, they are designing the bike with the specific use case of riding it. So they don't understand, or they aren't going to take responsibility for anything else. It's just like, for example, if your bike's on the rack, a lot of the time your warranty is void on any damage that happens to your bike when it's on a rack. Right. So, um, so yeah, anyways, that's how that works there. Ryan's question. Uh, he says, it's great that you guys spent some time talking about general all around fitness and how that's important in addition to pure cycling workouts. With that in mind, I have a question about stretching, understanding that this is an oversimplification. Why is static stretching bad, but yoga with its long holds is good. This is a super good point. Yeah. We get this question a fair amount too. And I, I honestly don't want to make it about yoga versus stretching so much as, uh, cause they're, they're both really stretching and, mm-hmm. and, and 
so much as turn it back to the types of stretching and what stretching is, is cool. about achieving. Mm-hmm. Um, so really when you talk about stretching and there are plenty of types of it, but what we almost always distill it down to is dynamic stretching, static stretching, and then what's called uh, PNF or proprio-neuromuscular facilitation, which is uh, basically just <clears throat> the muscle you're stretching. You contract it so it resists it, and then you relax it, and on that relaxation, you extend the stretch. Got We're it. not going to talk about that one, though, other okay. than that right there. <laughs> so really, it's just... Job done. Dynamic <laughs> warm-ups or dynamic <laughs> stretching versus static stretching. And static stretching is the one that's received the bad rap. Mm. Because when you hold the stretch for a long period of time, and what people probably don't realize, it has to be a pretty long time. So we're talking like over 60 seconds, you actually get reduced muscle activation. So Subsequent n- reduced, like thereafter. Yeah, afterward. Okay. So it's not really mm-hmm. desirable if you're going to go do something that's explosive, plyometric, or you, know, you have to muster power quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Really, outside of that, it's not that big of a concern. A little reduction in muscle activation when you're going to go do an Ironman or, or just a long bike ride or even a race that's going to roll out for 30 minutes or you know start slowly. Mm-hmm. It's just not that, not that much of a concern. So that argument doesn't really hold a heck of a lot of water. Mm. Um, and then people see stretching, if they want to see it in terms of how it benefits performance, it's not a lot of data to support that. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 what's a, what people are looking for when they stretch or what the data actually does support is reductions in incidence of injury and improvements in flexibility. If those are the two things you're chasing, it really doesn't matter which of the two types of stretching you do. There are probably better types of stretching to do at certain times based on what you want to achieve, but all of it is aimed at improving flexibility predominantly, or first and foremost, and then secondly, any reduction in incidence of injury, trying Mm -hmm. to set the stage, which is where the dynamic workouts probably, or the dynamic warmups, and I don't really ever apply these to bike workouts so much, although they probably probably would be worthwhile, mm-hmm. but do them before strength workouts. And it's really just for neuromuscular facilitation. I'm just trying to get the, the muscles used to moving in the manner I'm going to stress them. Yeah. So it's just prep. It's neuromuscular prep. Um, let's see. I think the, another point that I feel like is misunderstood with the stretching side of things is, uh, at least on this one, when he's talking about the yoga side of things and understanding why yoga can be bad. I think that, you know, uh, when you're talking about <clears throat> yoga movements. Sure. There are some that are just, they may feel like a stretch, but it's usually much more involved. Yeah, see, with, that. with yoga, especially I have a hard time just looking at it as stretching because yeah. there's so much work that goes on in a yoga yeah, class. Totally. A lot of it is flowing, which isn't static stretching at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a little more akin to dynamic stretching. There's a lot of isometric holds, which mm-hmm. are really taxing on the muscular system and the central nervous system for that matter. Mm-hmm. So it's not, yoga isn't just about flexibility. Yoga is about a lot of things. Yeah. So when they lump yoga into stretching, it's really hard for me to, to, say yoga is better than stretching yoga is worse than stretching yoga isn't just stretching yoga is like it's its own its own uh modality and i see yoga as being really helpful for a lot of cyclists and building a a strong body i think it's a great way to complement yeah complement a training routine and it's low impact um can be really cleansing in terms of you know shedding some stress and just refocusing or not focusing on anything yeah and and you know we talk about like you know crossfit and cycling how in many respects they pull on the same strings right mm-hmm. and and yoga is is a different string in many respects lower mm-hmm. intensity you're not so it's uh if you're looking for something else to add to round yourself out a bit more yep. i feel like it's a really good way to do it yeah um, and, and, in, and in terms of stretching, the, like I said before, all, all these forms of stretching have their place. Mm-hmm. And even static stretching prior to a workout, even a strength workout, if it's followed with a little bit of dynamic movement, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't detract from the quality of the workout. And mm-hmm. you still get the increases in range of motion. You still get the, the neuromuscular facilitation. You still get the uh, um, reductions, supposedly, in uh, yeah. injury incidents. 
Lee McCormick had the best warm up. I don't know if you guys remember. Yeah. For um, yeah, that was activating some... your hips, and it is amazing. I even had my seven year old daughter do this. Yeah. So it, can you describe what it is? Yeah, I will. It's awesome. It's gonna be great. <laughs> Take it away. Man. So uh, it isn't static stretching, but this is a is a movement. You kind of float through all all of them. And the first it's thing a dynamic warm up routine. Yep. Exactly. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> like Jed. Um, the first thing you do is you just bend over and try to touch your toes, but as one flowing moment movement. The next thing is you do. It's kind of like a deadlift without the bar. So you bend over, bend your legs a little bit, um, but not all the way. You you hinge at the hip and you go try to pick up a bar. And the next thing you do is you go down and do a full squat with your hands in front of you and stand up. And now try to touch your toes again. It is insane. I go to I, yeah. I get into like the middle of my shins and then I can touch the floor after I do this once. Wow. My daughter too, the same way. She could touch her hands on the she's a little girl. Touch yeah. her hands on the floor after doing this and yeah. she was having problems with stretching and gymnastics. Well, the muscles and the joints both have protective mechanisms. So so around each muscle fiber there's a, a little coil called a muscle spindle that reacts to stretching, both the rate of stretching and the length of the stretch and it and it, it contracts. It forces the muscle to not overstretch beyond what the mind mm -hmm. thinks it can can tolerate. And then there are little uh, units within the neuro uh, muscular tendinous junction. So in between where the where the muscle starts to become tendon there's what's called a Golgi tendon apparatus, Golgi tendon apparatus, plural, and mm. and and just abbreviated GTOs. And those basically are that the counter to the muscle spindle. The muscle spindle protects the muscle. The GTOs, once they're activated, actually let things start to release so that you can increase your stretch. And when we static stretch, we actually allow those GTOs to start to do their job so that we can increase our range of motion. <laughs> and in two, what happens, at least for me, is there's a difference between bending from the waist and bending from the hip. And you see a lot of people bending from the waist. Big difference, whether it's a lumbar flex or yep. a, or an actual exactly. lengthening of the hamstrings. Yep. And Lee had us actually do this on the mountain before we were going to go on a downhill. Yep. Like he'd, he'd we'd, or we'd hold up, we'd do this, we'd hold on to like a, a railing yep. and, and try to do these things. And I, I, uh, I need to do it more when I mountain bike because it's all about hip hinge in, in my opinion. Yep. Um, but so right before it, like do that. And you start to bend then from the hips rather than from the waist or from your upper lumbar, which This is which exactly happens. what I was talking about. Well, I, well, I don't apply dynamic workouts to, to bike workouts or warm-ups to bike workouts. I probably should because this is the sort of benefit you gain from it. Yeah. yeah. And it takes no time. From time trialing too, I could see this being mm. beneficial. Sure. One, one quick thing that I want to add to that uh, is evidence of it. Next time, so go watch a World Cup mountain bike race on YouTube or anything else and watch, find a mm. section where a guy goes over the handlebars and then watch where he's hinged. I guarantee if you. He's hinged. Yeah, if he's yeah, hinged. Yeah. I guarantee you he's bending at the lumbar and his hips are not. His where body's the hinge high. is. Yep. Yeah, his, his low body's body might be low, but his entire body isn't close to the bike. Yeah. And I mean, so the other side of yoga is it builds a lot of strength and or control perhaps is a, is a, is a good way to describe it too. In the sense that you, like you said, it's tying in the neuromuscular component, that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. I think it's really, these are really important things that a cyclist needs to have. They this can get it through strength training. They can get it through this yoga is a form as well. Of strength training. I mean, totally isometric is. contractions, which are simply contractions where you, you uh, the muscle doesn't lengthen or shorten. It's stuck in one position. So mm -hmm. it's like a wall sit. Sitting against a wall, your, your, your quads aren't changing length, but they're under a heck of a lot of stress. You know, sit, sit against a wall, go do it right now. You last 30 seconds, I'll be surprised. Last 30 seconds before you start to burn, I'll be surprised. Oh yeah. yeah. So, so it's quite a lot of, it's a pretty heavy muscular toll. And as I mentioned earlier, a pretty heavy toll on the central nervous system too. So I wouldn't recommend, definitely not, preceding yeah. a bike race or anything of that, uh, right. even, even a hard bike workout 
with a yoga session yeah. for, for that reason. Yeah. Another, the other aspect of it, I think if you are looking to incorporate heat training in one respect and you're looking to partner yoga or looking at yoga, you can do Bikram yoga, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff or Bikram, however you want to say it, but, uh, where you're getting some time and exposure to heat and you're doing something else. If you're just, if you don't have a sauna and you don't have something like that, yeah, that, that the heat help. aspect of it's pretty interesting when yeah. it comes to the Bikram stuff. And then the nice part about doing that is that you, uh, as, as we know, it's really hard to do heat training workouts and get in quality workouts, like, uh, in terms of like high intensity, it's so hard <laughs> I would say for, uh, for us to not be not adapted yep. impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're adapted, it's Your quality it's gonna, suffers. Yeah. It's gonna it just happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it, Your if your body can only deal with so much when it's trying to offload heat, it's only gonna let you work so hard. Yep. If you're looking for more exposure to heat, it can be another option to, to kind of combine on the yoga side of sure. things. It yeah. And it's, it's mild enough in intensity to actually do both. Well, yep. Uh, speaking of the body, we should cover something, Nate, with you. Yes. You went last week to the Mayo Clinic, which we should describe what the Mayo Clinic is because plenty of folks outside of the U.S. have no clue. It's like a famous hospital in Minnesota. It's rated number one in all these things. And what they're there, the cool thing about them is they have everyone's like together. And I paid for this executive program, but it is amazing. I'll, I will go do a blood test, see the doctor 15 minutes later, the results are there. And then in the in the in the meeting they'll be like typing in things asking for more results and he's like hitting refresh refresh oh here they're they're in you <laughs> oh, need these more nice. blood tests wow. you walk over 15 minutes later then you get an email with the results right away and then he's like now go see this specialist and you just go walk to another floor and see the specialist and That's you can cool. see like 18 months of doctors wow. in like two days Huh. That's awesome. It is amazing in, in that aspect. Yeah. So you went there to try to figure out why, because you sleep a ton, oh. uh, you eat extremely well, um, you got your gut biome, I have to be very careful how I say this one, <laughs> gut biome tested. Uh, yeah. Don't screw up the letters on that one. Uh, you got your, your gut biome tested, you got your um, blood tested, you did all these things. In many respects, like you should be a person that doesn't get sick very often. Yes. Uh, you should be a person that probably doesn't need as much rest or gets more, more value from the rest because yeah. you sleep so much. Yeah, sensibly you're doing everything right, but yes. not everything's going well. Actually everything is kind of going pretty well because well, you're racing really well. You're not getting sick. Yeah. Well, so I get the reason I have sinus infections, lots and lots of sinus infections, yes. almost maybe like eight to 10 a year, a eight, eight, eight a year. Yeah. So it's I think you looked back at the time that you spend with those sinus infections, it's like almost like three months, almost yeah, a quarter months. of the year. Yeah. So it's <laughs> a ton. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's just that's not right. one derailment after the next. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I'm, I'll try to condense this, but I had some low IgG3 results. You can go onto the forum. Yeah, there's, there's a, a thread on this. Uh -huh. Go to the Mayo Clinic. Basically, the IgG3, the, now my results are lower than ever, but they've changed the reference range. So now I'm no longer technically low, <laughs> but I'm right on the borderline, which is annoying. <laughs> um, I went through all their tests and I did this like heart stress and basically... I was like slightly anemic, but other than that, they said, yeah. you're awesome. You're training a ton too. So yeah, so it's not surprising. Sense. Yeah. Um, they said that, uh, yeah, so you're health wise, you're great. But they did, they, they asked me, you know, I don't live the, a stress-free life. And he said, well, you're, you are probably fatigued because you have depression or anxiety. So that was like a, you know, kind of like, like exactly right because you don't think about it and yeah. the reason why i bring it up is i was googling on this too and said like i saw one study where 20 percent of ncaa athletes are depressed and hmm. i know in general there are a lot of people with depression or anxiety mm -hmm. so what i'm going to try to do now is go see a counselor and maybe um the the doctors there maybe talk about medication 
Um, and I, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but supposedly if, if you, if I were to take medication and you can try different kinds and everything reacts differently with people and I did, I wasn't fatigued anymore. Well, then that's probably related, but if I was, then it's not related. And you can't argue that there's a mind body connection with everything we do. And you've pretty thoroughly vetted the whole body side of things. So it makes sense to go the mind direction. Yeah. So go do that. And. Uh, I say this too. I don't need people emailing me saying, you know, anything like that. That's fine. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm good on that. I don't think I'm depressed, but it's just like you take that, you know, well, maybe, maybe I do have a stressful Why not give life. Some thought? Exactly. What, yep. what's the harm of going and seeing someone and talking to them? Yeah. And I, and I think that it's good that you, I think it's good to have this sort of conversation because hopefully we're helping some, cause it's, yeah. uh, there's a lot of stigma around it. That's exactly it. It's hard to, uh, from uh, the athlete side of things when it's you're a type A driven athlete, taboo topic. Yeah. yeah. Male or female, uh, there's a lot of ego involved in you being that athlete and you progressing and everything working out. And, uh, so it's hard to, to be introspective and kind of look at this from this, this perspective. So I appreciate you doing it. This is, um, in our area, the eating disorders. And I think depression, yes. both like, you know, and I'm, I'm fairly successful person. So it's, uh, you think that like, yo, I, I have to be this type of person to experience this or to have this no, issue, but it's not right. It could be anybody. Right. So totally. that's, I'll look into that and cool. I, I'm an oversharer. So I'll tell you all how it happens. We'll jump in on the leather couch, uh, from Paul. He says, I'm a new listener to the podcast, but love the content so far. And I'm growing more curious about the programs you offer on your site. I have a question regarding what you recommend for how to integrate training into daily commutes. How would someone in my situation make the most of both the morning commute and the ride home if they primarily race crits and occasionally do occasionally do some road races? My morning commute is eight miles because I always take the most direct route. I ride at a good pace, averaging about 20 miles per hour. Would you recommend adding some intervals or doing some type of workout in the morning or take it easy in the morning and save the intensity for the ride home where I have more time and freedom to ride longer? Uh, thanks for reading. Any advice you have? Yeah. So um, first and foremost, I would become clear, Paul, on what you're hoping to achieve with these. Um, are these a training supplement or are these a training replacement? I mean, are you using yeah. these in addition to your workouts or are these your workouts? Because mm-hmm. if they are your workouts, I'd recommend your, you know, your, your uh, earlier suggestion to, to incorporate some intensity. And if they're simply supplementary, then I, I would definitely tone down the intensity and I'd also consider when I schedule them. I mean, you can mm-hmm. do your, for instance, if these are just supplementary and you're simply looking to pad your mileage or get a little more training benefit, then you can do your hard workouts perhaps in the evening mm-hmm. and then do these rides in a fasted state, get your fasted ride in, eat your breakfast at work. Um, you mm-hmm. could do, th- uh, if you were to turn them into a workout, so there's just so many different ways to go here. Yeah. If you wanted to turn them into a workout and that, that was going to be your workout for the day, then you could postpone it to the afternoon so that you could t- time your nutrient intake or your lunch mm-hmm. such that you had a good three hour gap and you were ready to rip it on the way home. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you got home, you could follow your training immediately with uh, the appropriate meal. Yep. And Chances are you're going to get a better if you can adequately fuel, if this is going to be a situation where your commutes or when you have to train, I feel like that's a good solution is maybe you eat your lunch slightly later than noon. If you, you know, leave, leave work at five, uh, you eat sometime around two, sometime around three, if you're able to. And then that time by that time, or eat at the regular time and then just have a snack a couple hours out. Sure. There's a lot of ways to address the the Mm -hmm. nutrient timing, but the fact is you'll be loaded up and ready to roll. I think a lot of people are starting to commute more right now, just because at least in the Northern hemisphere, because weather changes everything else. It's starting to become more spring-like. There's more light. Uh, mm-hmm. I think next week we go, we change, have the 
time change as well. Um, yep. I think so. So, yeah. so that'll change things around too. Uh, plenty of uh, people doing this. Uh, we usually, when we talk about commuting, we say, you know, try to look at your life in the sense that you have X amount of hours that you can spend on a bicycle. Uh, and if you can spend more of those times doing high quality, or more of those hours doing high quality, then chances are you're going to get more benefit from it. But at the same time, there are other benefits to commuting. There's the environmental benefit, of course. There's the other side of things, the psychological benefit, because driving in a car can sometimes be a little bit hectic, whereas if you're just riding on your bike, perhaps on different roads, it can be helpful. Um, but then there's also just the fact that, you know, uh, it's once again, you might be padding the training that you're already doing. So there's plenty of reasons to do it. So in this case, we're not talking about whether you should commute or not. We're just assuming that you are and really how to make the most of it. And one thing that I see with people is that, uh, it's really hard to just go easy on a commute. Um, like it's really hard to do that for people. And I see a lot of people say that they ride a fixed gear bike and they ride the fixed gear bike to force them to not go too hard. But I think that's a little backwards because if you have any sort of hills, then you are going to be pressing hard. No recovery on a fixed, fixed gear bike. Yeah. And you're always spinning. I think honestly ride something like a mountain bike with like lower gearing and that sort of stuff. Then you're really limited because then you aren't going to be pushing too hard. Right. Um, uh, you won't be going get pushing for KOMs down uh, crazy streets, anything yeah. like that. I would just be careful that if this does supplement your training, not to get too carried away with it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing to say you can't get away with uh, taking an easy ride and sprinkling it with four or five, six second sprints sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That probably wouldn't detract from the quality of your other workouts, probably wouldn't overload your system to the point of overtraining or anything close to it. But don't fall into the rut of just because I'm on my bike, I have to go hard. Mm-hmm. Which is easy for us to do. It is. It's, it's way more fun. <laughs> I have heard none of that because that is <laughs> I just I, a lot of people just go la 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 yeah, yeah. when they hear this stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's let's now imagine we don't know, but let's say this is all of this person's training, all yep. of Paul's training, mm-hmm. and eight miles isn't a long time, mm-hmm. right? Like you, especially if he's going twenty miles per hour, could Paul do intervals both in the morning and in the evening? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just double up. Yeah, yeah, and that second workout would come at a somewhat of a depleted state. I mean, yeah. th- there would be, I would bet a bit of additional cell signaling that would benefit that second ride uh, to actually make it worthwhile, even if you're carrying some fatigue into it. Here's how I would I would structure it. I would do, just like our Saturday Sundays, and and, and on Tuesday, Thursdays, I would have the, the more uh, intense, shorter intervals in the morning, because I feel like those, at least for me, uh, I actually know, they take less glycogen. Um, they are like compared to a sweet spot workout. Mm-hmm. So do that kind of high stuff to me i could do it's a much easier in the morning to do um 30 second on offs Mm -hmm. than to do a 20 minute sweet spot interval yep and then in the evening after that big meal uh or uh after lunch and stuff you could do your maybe sweet spot intervals threshold intervals and then immediately replenish when you get home Mm -hmm. and that could be a good chad yeah that's an interesting way to tackle it i mean some high intensity and then some moderate intensity and then you know nutrition on both ends of it properly Mm -hmm. timed you could also uh another thing that you could do is if you have like you said paul that you have your straight route i i have if i was to commute into work i have a straight route that's darn near flat like the whole way in but there's also a route that I can take that's much more hilly coming back. And if you are just going to be having commuting and using that sort of thing, I recommend having, if possible, if you can have a few different routes that you can use, because a lot of the time, if you're doing city streets, don't do intervals. It's just way too dangerous, yeah. Oh, yeah. right? Um, uh... If you have suburban streets, urban streets, or sorry, suburban or rural streets that you're working with, then you can really change things around. Like for example, if I'm on that flat, or I have one route that I could take that has a super long bike path with zero 
interruptions and it's really safe. And on that one, it'd be great to schedule in some more steady work. But then there's another one that I have that has long climbs. And then another one that has really punchy climbs that I could take, like I can vary the route. So think of that. If you have trouble scheduling in any sort of intervals because of stoplights or anything else in one spot, look at another place where you maybe can change the route and it can kind of inspire your, uh, your, your rider or kind of guide your ride to be what it needs to be. Uh, Matthew's question. He says, I'm targeting masters nationals this year, and I'd like to plan a five day camp prior to the race weekend. He says, I've read ideal timing for this can be anywhere from four to eight weeks prior to the event. So I was wondering if you guys had any input on when to best put this on the calendar. I plan to do this from a Wednesday to Sunday. And he's mentions that I will have to work a bit Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He says, I currently train from the high volume plans with good results. Uh, this is another thing that a lot of people are talking about right now, because once again, better weather race season, that sort of stuff, or people are just getting tired of winter (laughs) and, uh, they want to have a training camp that they plan. So I guess the, the main, the crux of this is when should you plan a camp and what you're really getting at is how my body responds to a block of training like this. We didn't look this up, but I'm assuming Mm -hmm. masters national is nationals is August, September. It's gotta be somewhere in June, July, August. Like they put it in March one year, which was just, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> got personal right there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it did actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a waste of my season. Um, so, be, being that you have a lot of time to work with Matthew, you can kind of test this out, test the waters, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a formal camp either. It can be just a block of training where maybe you do a long, long ride on Friday, and then you do a heavy weekend. But in any case, this is if you haven't done this before, this is very much a fact finding mission for a while. You're not going to be able to predict how you'll adapt to that or uh, respond to this and how quickly you'll adapt, how quickly you'll recover. It's almost synonymous. Um, you even mentioned it. The, the ideal timing was listed anywhere from four to eight weeks. So what does that tell you? Some writers bounce back after four weeks. Some writers take much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it all, you also have to consider the camp itself. I mean, a lot of camps are volume only, but then some camps are team camps where you get roped into a fair amount of intensity too. And a lot of people come back so fatigued that their training <laughs> gets derailed shortly. Or, or, or for a while, it, it depends. The conditions of the camp itself also need to be taken into account. I mean, are you doing this at altitude? Is there going to be heat? Is your sleep going to be interfered with? Is proper nutrition going to be um, a, a bit of a difficulty? So, mm-hmm. I mean, th- those are just when you structure the camp itself, things to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that rate of recovery and adaptation is, is not only is it subjective and you're going to have to figure out what works for you. You're also going to have to figure out what else is going on and what your rate of ad- adaptation is going to be based on the amount of stress you're under off the bike. Mm-hmm. So a lot of factors. So a lot of reason for you to play with this as much as possible between now and then, Yeah. obviously without overdoing it, you're not going to do a team camp every three or four weeks. What have you found for yourself? Like what worked for you? So uh, yeah, throughout your I, years and your racing more example of the whole four weeks versus eight weeks is yeah. I had a buddy who was nationally very successful rider. He would do two weeks out. He would do a really intense week or actually three weeks out, really intense week, take a week of pretty much off the bike. I mean, like go fishing off the bike, do nothing, then do some sharpening workouts, uh, early in the week leading into the important weekend nationals weekend typically, mm-hmm. and then kill it. Yeah. I couldn't do something like that at, at all. So I would typically do a, a camp a longer period of time out so that I had a much longer recovery window and my recovery would be a bit more active in nature. John, when you say fairly, fairly successful, we're talking two national championships for this person? Two or three. I, I yeah. lost, Jason I lost Walker. Yeah. 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 So he's, he's listening. He's had good success yeah. with that. And, and I'm not saying that's what he did or what he still does. Maybe he's figured out a better way. Maybe that doesn't work for him anymore in his you know advanced age. <laughs> that's a good point. It, like, it yeah. does change with age. Sure. 
I, I mean, I already noticed just, I mean, I've only really been cycling, I guess, for about six, seven years now, but I've noticed a, a change in how my body responds. Well, the more you train and the more uh, fit you become over yes. years and years of training, the, 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 more, the differently your body is going to react differently. Yep. Mm -hmm. It goes all back to one of the earlier questions about doing races back to back. Mm -hmm. As you get more fit, it's easier. And as you get more fit, and a more training stress. camp of three or four days might mm -hmm. not be a big deal at all. It might not be sufficient enough stimulus. It might not yeah. be considered a camp. It might just be a, you know, a, a yeah. reasonably big block of training. Mm -hmm. But uh, back to, and I didn't even ask for this, but how to actually structure a camp. There are some yeah. recommendations that I've read recently, and, and these jibe with things I've read uh, in the past too. But um, your length of time, your, the duration of your camp, that uh, what is that, five days? So Wednesday through Sunday, mm -hmm. that's a really tough one. Because to load over five days and then not be just completely wasted at the end of it <laughs> it's is really tough. But then to block it with a recovery day in there is tough too, because you can only do two days on, one day off, two days on. So mm. I would almost consider changing that to either a four-day camp where you hit all four days or even a three-day camp. Or if you can, lengthen it where you do three days on, day off, two days on mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. Either way, that the five-day block is kind of a tough one to balance. What mm. about a first-day intensity day off and then three days of yeah, volume. That, that would, that's a good way. I mean, yeah. that, that could work. That could be enough. Yeah. One uh, thing I've seen pros do that average guys don't is that very thing. I see average guys do training blocks and they have any sort of like a team camp or anything else where they just go hard every day. Five days apart. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> yes, yes. what so I see from pros, uh, and talking to them and seeing their training every single day, when they have a big block of training, they have days that are easy planned into that and they respect yeah. those. Yeah. So and it's, it's just something to think about for sure. And then, uh, if you know your, your weekly training stress, that's super helpful going into a camp. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't, then you know your hours of training and the type of training and you can actually do some, some calculations based on that. But say, say you, you look back at your last four weeks of training and you know what your average week, your weekly average is for each of those weeks. So say it's 500, then over these, say, say it's a three day camp over these three days, you're going to cram all 500 of those TS into the TSS or the training stress into those three days. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a big intensive block where all the stress comes real quickly. Mm -hmm. And then of course you recover afterwards, but the, uh, the mistake I see a lot of writers make in that case is they see, I'm going to have to do 500 TSS. I'm going to have to do it over three days. So I'm going to kill it on this first day. Yeah. And then they just hobble through the remaining two workouts. So start lighter, finish heavier, yep. you know, to 20, 20% of your TS or your training stress. And then maybe the next day do 40%. And then on the final day do what, what's, what's like 50%. Yeah. So just ramp it up over the course of it. And you should end feeling absolutely tired for sure. But mm -hmm. within reach of recovery, this shouldn't be something where you're like, I don't know how long it's going to take me to bounce back from this. Cause I am crushed mm -hmm. that if that's how you feel at the end of it, you overdid it. Yep. Dial it back a bit. I promise you'll be rewarded for it. And I think a hard part can be mentally you're in that group and maybe there's some higher level riders oh, and you're yeah. lower oh, level. It's a bummer. And there is a right Donna. turn back to the house, uh -huh. Yes, but you go, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to hang with these yeah. cat one, these, you know, these yep. great or X pros. Yeah, you don't want to be the guy who's back of the house, showered up and sitting on the couch and everyone's coming in from a longer day, but, but it's okay. It much be. it and, is. That's what I'm saying. Get yeah. over that. Get over yeah. it. Cause it is not. Productive. It's much worse to be the guy that the next day is off the back from, you know, 2K into the ride. But it just or could be the guy that can't race effectively yeah. for a while. It yeah. could be detrimental to your fitness. So the yeah. whole reason 
uh, well, not the whole reason, but part of the reason that you're there is to increase your fitness. And mm-hmm. you can bear yourself to both your points so much that you then can't race or you're, it. it takes too long to recover. <laughs> I've done it a few times. Just we because of, I think I'd learn after the first one, but I did not. <laughs> just because of ego. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, uh, so in, in the eight weeks out, I've never seen a camp planned quite that far out. Normally it's like a four to six window and it's kind of mm-hmm. the way the body responds. I mean, even like chronic stress is calculated over f- f- six, six weeks. weeks for most riders because that's about when those gains start to really manifest. So what you're looking for is to, what you're hoping to do is capitalize on the upswing of your performance peak. So not, not reach the peak and then be on the other side of it by the time your competition rolls around. So again, this is something that will require some experimentation because does that fall four weeks? Does that fall five weeks, six weeks? Mm -hmm. What's the composition of the camp, et cetera. Yeah. I think, uh, this is, I'm not planning any sort of camps this year. But I am planning a few stage races this year. One of them is four days long, so it's a pretty long stage race. As preparation for something? No, no. I mean, it's all building toward one big event, right? And I think that, like, even using these same takeaways, if you have a situation where you're doing, like, a a stage race, that sort of thing, if it's not the A race of what you're doing for the whole year, I think these takeaways can still really help in the sense that you're trying – you're looking at – once again, look at this for the fitness benefit and, and look at how you can manage that most effectively. Mm-hmm. I think too, uh, too often we just get carried away with, uh, you know, seeing right in front of our face and sure. just chasing yeah, it too Look at hard. the longer picture or the, the, the bigger picture. Yeah. And then, um, post camp, just another couple, um, iotas of advice. Mm. Um, the week after typically you're going to need a couple of days off, uh, just about every rider can benefit from a couple of days completely off the bike and then spend the rest of the rest of the week working on endurance. Really? I mean, just, just gentle rides. There's no real reason to incorporate intensity. If the camp buried you sufficiently, but you know, not to the point where you're out of reach of recovery intensity in the week immediately following it probably doesn't have a place mm-hmm. again, reason to experiment. Maybe it does for you. Um, and then finally, um, don't forget to increase your training stress afterwards. If you've mm. got a fitness bump and now you can handle 600 mm. TSS a week, make sure you're doing at least 600 TSS a week. If you're trying to ride that chronic stress wave. Yeah. yeah. After you recover. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the only other point that we should probably cover on this is like early season versus late season camps. And I guess like the special, yeah. or the, the objective of them. Yeah. And that's something that really <laughs> for most training camps, I don't think there's much objective to them. <laughs> uh, it's usually just like, I'm super excited to ride with my friends. We're going to go out and ride and it's going to be great roads, anything else. But if you're able to structure the camp at all, it really does, especially as you get later toward a goal race, Hopefully it's got uh, some direction toward a the specificity. Bit more specialized. Yeah. Yep. Cause you're, you're probably not looking to just accumulate a bunch of volume for a late season training camp. Mm-hmm. By then you have very specific goals and those goals are probably much closer mm-hmm. or, or probably pretty immediate. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just, well, first off you have to consider how much fatigue you're carrying into the camp and, and perhaps tone the camp down as a, as a result of that. Yeah. And honestly, uh, I think that covers it. Yeah, that's, that's really it. So just, just later season camps typically are a bit more focused. They're not simply about volume. They're probably about addressing something in particular, you know, the demands of that very important event. I might be putting my foot in my mouth here. Uh, so, uh, if you want Nate, you can like rip the microphone plug out of here, but so oh, wait. <laughs> yes. No, no, it's not going to be on anything in particular. Okay. Um, I'm like thinking that. of a new creature. I'm like, no, don't no, say no, that. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, but I, I would love in the future to have a training camp that we organize and people can come oh, a to train a road one. Yeah. I think it'd be fun to have Chad lay things out and have the actual folks, you know, so in terms of like what they should do. I think it'd be like fun. Li- liability nightmare. Exactly. <laughs> We're not really used like to a, that yeah. big software. Right. But it would be, it would just be really cool. Um, cause I bet you could, I bet you could lay out a heck of as a camp. As long as it's so. in Mallorca. 
<laughs> Sounds good to me. No, no complaints there. So um, I'm sure everybody else listening to this would feel the same. But uh, for now, we're going to take a few of the live questions that you've submitted uh, for those that are live uh, from the audience. I'll take YouTube if you want to take Facebook, Nate. Um, it's yep. We're not on our normal day, so we might have less questions than normal. But uh, we'll cut through there and check them out. Uh, Kenny asks, Nate, what are you eating on the bike to get 100 grams of carbs an hour? Um, a mix of things. Martan... Uh, the drink, which is, so you get hundred grams of carbs. You need to have like a two to one ratio between fructose and glucose or else you can't, uh, oh, sorry. Glucose is two and fructose is one, one or else yeah. you can't absorb it all. And you could have gut stress and yep. gas and diarrhea and, and that's stuff not like a hard that. number either. Not everyone can absorb 60 grams and 30 grams or, you know, so, so yep. great point. A bit. Uh, and so the SIS and Martan has that two to one mm-hmm. and then I'm doing a uh, honey singer chews, which is a, I believe a one to one ratio. And then doing uh, SIS gels and scratch. So you got to do math to figure out what the exact amount is, which is kind of hard to do, but just a mix of those. But you've done the math. So you yeah, exactly. You know I have a spreadsheet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There it is. I, I just uh, stick to the Martin gels and, and then the drink mix. Unless I'm doing something like mountain biking, I'll just take in scratch in my bottles and then I'll have their gels. It takes a lot of gels to, to get to that to that point. It does. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. Um, okay, cool. Uh, somebody says, "What uh, to which plan do I point a beginner cyclist who's already expressing great power to weight ratios?" Uh, Lad is a 10k runner with a 14. And he says a 14 minute 5k. Holy cow! Whoa. And high 29 minute 10k. Jeez, he held 4.8 watts per kilogram for an hour after a month or so on the bike. That's seriously impressive. Awesome. Um, it, for an athlete like this, like uh, I, I understand that a lot of the time people say like, what sort of plan should I choose for a specific watt kg? Or if I'm already really high, which one should I pick? And it's more about the specific demands of the event that they're planning to do rather than their current fitness they have. Yeah, right, Chad? I'd, I'd, <clears throat> I'd still steer them toward the same base build specialty cycle I'd steer anybody toward. They're just mm-hmm. working with a higher level of fitness, but they'll probably, I mean, they're going to advance or improve. Mm-hmm. In real similar manners, just you know, starting from a, a higher ground. Would you worry about give, putting too much volume too soon? Yeah, I mean, an endurance runner who can run that fast is probably a pretty fit mm-hmm. human. Hundred miles a week. Yeah, right. So it can probably tolerate quite a lot of stress, yeah. but this is new stress, different types of stress, and yeah. it's lower, lower impact. So that'd be a little less of a concern than transitioning a uh, cyclist into running. I worry the same thing that happens with cyclists going to running, running, going to cyclists, mm-hmm. knee issues, stuff like that. It's where just that, a different movement. Yeah. So I would, I, I would do maybe the medium and get that going. And then if they, they're good at medium, then go to high. Just with anything else. Yeah. I mean, start on the lower side of what you think you can tolerate and then nudge up from there rather than go backwards. Yeah. It's an amazingly fast person right there <laughs> to be able to keep that sort of running and then also do that on the bike. Uh, it sounds like Mike Woods almost, you know, uh, really cool story with him. Uh, let's see. Um, somebody, oh yeah. Do you have one, Nate? Yeah. Um, Go ahead. This is, this is for me, but it's general for, I think it'll help a lot of people. It says, Nate, I've heard you say that it takes you longer to recover after rides. I've always struggled with this. What have you done to help recover faster, better? Really, uh, eating on the bike, like, <laughs> yeah, nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. Mm-hmm. So that the high carb intake during the day, um, I, I do, uh, you know, you read about nutritional timing. You should never do this, but it says, but I do a big carbohydrate with a lot of fiber right before bed, um, to try to get some extra meal in. I, my body fat this morning was 9%. 
I, I just keep doing that. It makes my legs feel better the next day. And then even on the easy days, so the I do I do Baxter a lot, which is just like <laughs> somebody. There are a lot of people around the world drinking right now. Um, That's the drink game. Yeah. But even on that one, yeah. I've especially if I have a hard day the next day, yeah. I'm still trying to shoot for that hundred grams per hour. Yeah. And I. The science says you can't do this, but I don't believe it is train your gut to, to process more carbohydrate. Um, I science think, isn't always right. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's just undiscovered. That's all. It's, it's always undiscovered. Right. It's just undiscovered. Yeah. So take this with a grain of salt. It's probably completely wrong. So just skip ahead for a second. But I, I when I first would do a lot of carbs, I'd get a lot of gas and I would get some like diarrhea. Yeah. And then as I do more and more, what, what it happens less. What were those though? Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. I just do it more and more and it-, it You can it, train your gut. This is a real thing. I mean, oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. There's no way that, um, like you look at top level, like the, the blog post that we have on Jeff Kabush at Dirty Kanza, you can check it out on blog.trainerroad.com. But the amount of, of just like, you know, just gels, mix, chews, yeah. and Coca-Cola that he was taking yeah, in crazy. is amazing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it, it, he has trained for that. Yeah. There's no way that it was just a natural ability, right? I, I think mentally what I'm trying to do is is always carb load for the next workout. If I could always be like fully carb loaded mm. and not blow up my overall calories um, mm -hmm. so I have to reduce fat and protein, but so I come in every workout loaded with glycogen, then I can hit that next workout. I can hit that next workout yeah. and that helps. And then also sleep, um, yeah. obviously, lots of sleep. It's nutrient timing too. You're just well in advance of the demands. Yeah. So, and, and you know that your work, your workload is high and the type of work you're doing requires a lot of sugar. And yep. I'm trying to do two hour trainer rides. So, I mean, if, if I was doing 30 minute trainer rides, I probably wouldn't. And trainer rides being sweet spot work and above, right? Or sweet spot work. Yeah. Right now I'm doing actually intensity or easy. So okay. a mix. Um, yeah. Uh, Jared asks, I jumped from a low volume plan to a mid volume plan in November and have had pretty good compliance since. But the gains have been minimal. What is the list of things to check to diagnose a lack of progress? Uh, the first thing that I would say, if you are lacking any sort of, like, if you feel like you should be making more, uh, first thing I would check is nutrition. That's like number one for me, right? Like, uh, if you're not fueling everything properly, um, I know a lot of folks try to, you know, cut the line thin. Maybe they're trying to do some of the workouts fasted, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what Nate just said, uh, nutrition, the next thing that I would check though, uh, for sure is the amount of sleep that you're getting. That's a big thing and the quality of sleep that you're getting. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that, all the different stressors that you have in your life. That's like my checklist that I run through. Yeah, those are all good. I, I would start with something else. However, um, mm. just that jump may have been too big. So you were responding well with a certain training load. You up that training load and your response started to tone down. Maybe it's a little too much. Even if you can complete the workouts, you just, you just might not be able to absorb high, it. doesn't mean your body's ability to adapt to that new load is su sufficient or yeah. yeah. And also look, um, look at your calendar on trainer mm -hmm. and going back. Cause sometimes you think we think we're consistent. Yeah. And then you look back and you're actually not consistent. Yeah. And, um, as you get through the plan, I mean, how many of you guys ever done this where you think like I was killing it? You look back and you see all the days you missed. Oh yeah. And it's, it's not it happens. Your memory does not remember what actually happened. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've been quantifying my sleep with a whoop band. A few of us have here. And, uh, it's, it's provided some insight into the sleeping side of things for me. I'm not sure about the other, the value in terms of the other stuff, uh, really, but, um, it really hasn't changed the way I've slept though. It's mm -hmm. more, I guess it's just informed me on that. But, uh, the one thing that I feel like in one respect is looking at it as a relative metric day to day, uh, it helps me keep track and at least go, yeah, that was a bad night's sleep. And perhaps yeah. that's why that workout yeah. felt harder. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, but there are plenty of different ways you can track sleep. There's countless things these days that you can use. 
Chad, this one's for you. Um, Ricardo has been working on base, uh, high volume, sweet spot base, and he's just beginning general build. And Ricardo's asking is, you know, there, it's a jump there. Should I be like prepping for build by doing short power, like a little bit in the middle there before I do it? Because uh, yeah, it's a bit of a shot coming from something that's yeah. exclusively sweet spot and recovery, which yeah. is what the high volume plant is. Yeah. So that yeah, it's a fair um, concern, and it's probably going to be a bit more challenging from you for you than people coming from the low and moderate volume, mid volume ones that incorporate some of the stuff you're now seeing. Yeah. So it's really it's it's a form of it's it's a new shock to the system. So it it's it might be a bit of a learning curve, but I promise it'll be pretty steep. If, you, if you've gotten through a high volume sweet spot base plan, you've got a ton of muscle endurance. Mm -hmm. So that base is very well covered. And now it's time to work on something else and diving right into it. Uh, did he say he's doing high volume? You? I think so. Yeah, that might be where I would recommend to play it a little more cautiously and try the mid-volume plan for a week or two or longer mm -hmm. and see that might be sufficient considering this is a different form of stress. Mm -hmm. That the high-intensity stuff takes a greater toll. Your point, though, is or that can, you could just expect to struggle for a week or two, but then you kind of, like, get right in there. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you have such a like I big said, that, there'll foundation. Be a, there'll be a curve, but it'll probably be pretty steep. Um, the other thing could they do is maybe at the end, if they're worried about this, at the end of the plan, start switching and maybe, like, a Taylor or a Bluebell, that kind of one of the longer, like switching out Thursday with a with a Toward short the end short of the high volume sweet spot. Yeah. yeah, you could if you're worried about yeah. it. Yeah, start to incorporate some early. Yeah, if yeah. you can, if you have the presence of mind and the, to to see it that far ahead, that's not a bad idea. The other mm -hmm. thing that I've I've done on this is uh, do a mountain bike race or something like that inside of the plan on a replacing a Sunday or a Saturday mm -hmm. ride, sure, sure. which is or a group ride exactly drop some, ride. exactly something like that to really get that where it's not. Uh, is not dictated the pace I can train or well, it is dictated, yeah, that, but that too, though. I mean, I've done sweet spot base plans or sweet spot plans where I focus predominantly on sweet spot. In fact, really that, and maybe some endurance riding, some recovery riding. Then I go out for my first group ride thinking I've got a ton of fitness. My FTP is so high relative to my weight. Yeah. I'm going to kill this and I get spanked because <laughs> I don't have exposure to the other types of intensity that they dole out. Yep. But a couple of weeks later, I'm, I'm just fine. And you're yeah. actually probably that you're in a better spot. A couple weeks later, I'm real good. You're, you're like better way spot. better, yeah. right? Yep. Like so. That's just the just expected to hurt. It's a transition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So happens. Um, Moshe, I I hope that's how you say the the name there. Uh, it all just paraphrase the question, but basically, it's a common question that we get from triathletes chat where they ask like, should I follow a sweet spot base and then work into the full distance plans, or should I just follow full distance from the get go? Mm. In almost every case, I would recommend that somebody just follow the full distance plans, right? Yeah, because they're contextually designed. Unless for you're really comfortable with incorporating, developing, and incorporating your own swim and run workouts. Mm -hmm. So if you're already really good at this and you're simply looking to focus on your bike and you can balance the, the other demands and, and the maintenance of those other disciplines, mm -hmm. then feel free to use the sweet spot base plan. But the triathlon plans are developed with the bike workouts folded into it so that everything works cohesively, all three disciplines. Cool. Um, uh, another question that we have here, uh, oh, I just missed, oh, a few people man, uh, mentioning that they cracked, uh, they have had their bikes, they say crack on the trainer. Mm -hmm. One person says, I thought I cracked my bike on the trainer, but then I realized it was from a different event. And then I just noticed it when it was on the trainer. That I believe would probably be more common than people would think if they have a situation like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Christopher Wood asks, uh, I would like a discussion on fueling for different types of trainer workouts. Should I fuel for easy stuff up to an hour? How should I fuel for VO2? Uh, I normally just mix a couple of bottles of sports drink as needed. Is there any added benefit to fuel differently based on the type of, of trained? Uh, I think it means like energy trained, VO2, threshold, mm -hmm. sweet spot, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so 
almost any short workout, an hour or less, if you come into it, even after a, an overnight fast, you've probably got enough glycogen on board to get through it. doesn't mean it's the best way to go about it, but you can survive it. Um, and then uh, short, easy rides, you probably don't need anything more than water. You just don't. You're going to be metabolizing a minimal amount of glucose or glycogen. You're going to be relying predominantly on fat if it's truly easy and assuming you're somewhat aerobically adapted. And then when we get into the higher intensity stuff, I mean, even sweet spot work, or I'm sorry, VO2 max work, if you look at the the total time and intent, time and zone, by the end of it, if you, you do a, a three by two, three by three by two, you're looking at what, 12 minutes of work. You probably got enough fuel to get through that. Mm -hmm. um, when you start pushing beyond the hour, though, that's when things get a whole lot trickier, especially if it's sweet spot work, stuff that's really steady and highly demanding in terms of um, carbohydrate expenditure mm -hmm. or usage. Uh, and that's when you have to very particular, particularly fuel for the workout. Um, and to, if it's, you're doing three workouts a, a day, yeah. everything you said, or not three workouts a day, three workouts a week, <laughs> oh, right. yeah. everything I say, like I would just do that. But as you get more and more volume, it's that you do have to start thinking ahead. Exactly. You think about the next workout, yeah. the next workout. And if you're doing two hard days back to back, or if you're doing a double day of, yeah. any, of any type, whether it's multi-sport or just another yeah. bike ride, just because one day you can get through it doesn't mean it's not going to impact your next day. Yeah, so catch up. Mm -hmm. this has been a huge, um, change in the ability for me to increase my fitness and do more volume is that even though I don't need it to get through this workout, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, absorb it and use it so that my muscles are more loaded for the next time I get into a, uh, not as big of a hole. Mm -hmm. Um, my leg, my legs just feel better. Yeah. Uh, Zach says, any strategy suggestions for my first time doing a circuit race? I'm 46 years old, 250 FTP, two weeks into sweet spot base one mid volume of the podcast, new subscriber to train and road, loving it. And thanks. So uh, it depends. I assume that you're not just, if you're racing it this weekend and you're two weeks into sweet spot base one mid volume, uh, that's, that's one thing, uh, later on, it could be something else just because, you know, if you're just starting out, um, well, I guess stepping back circuit races will totally vary. You know, it's, it's fair to say, forgive me, that criteriums are predominantly flat-ish. He's but, talking about circuit race though. But exactly. Oh, and yeah. circuit races is where you get a whole lot more variation. So you can have a circuit race that's darn near flat. Mm -hmm. You could have a circuit race that is extremely tough. Like uh, the one that they usually have in the tour of Utah every year that climbs up yeah. to the Capitol and then drops down through these neighborhoods and through Colorado through garden of the gods. Yes. Through garden of the gods. Yeah. Like they're they're The circuit races can be some of the most demanding and difficult races you can do. Um, usually, uh, at least the ones that you see that are like at big spectacles, that sort of thing. If it has a climb in it, it's usually a substantial climb and it's just, it, it basically doesn't allow you to hide in drafts or anything else to kind of hide your lack of fitness. He's a new racer. Uh, mentions that it's his first time doing a circuit race. Okay. So doesn't it's his first time a doing racer. a circuit race and it's just a new format. My advice may not carry, but if it's mm -hmm. your first time racing, mm -hmm. And you're doing a circuit race. I would just learn how to work, just learn how to survive in a field. Yes. Not even move around in a field, just uh, ride safely. I wouldn't it, concern myself with anything more than that. My experiences in circuit races race efficiently. Don't get bold, uh, especially if it has a big climb in every yeah. lap. And if you're not a new racer and it's your first exposure to a circuit race, well, mm -hmm. it depends on how many laps, but you know, I would play it conservatively for safely the first half of the race for sure. And then form my, uh, strategy over the course of that. A few things that you can do for that. If it has like a climb in there, uh, one thing you can do is position yourself. So you, um, uh, you can sag climb Sunk. basically. So, uh, coming even before you sag climb the hill, which I'll get to in a bit, but get into a position where coming into the hill, you actually allow yourself to carry more momentum coming into that hill. 
so then you don't just come into it with the same momentum as everybody else. And then if you can, ideal scenario is you kind of do like what Nate said in the sense that you kind of allow yourself to build momentum and kind of move on the outside of that group like that and then get to the climb. And then hopefully that allows you some time so that you're up at the front and you can drift toward the back without having to put out quite as much power. It's such a great strategy because what it also does is it makes everyone think you're weak. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tailed off. I did yeah. this at the road race and there'll be a great video on this is I can be at the front of it. And then it was a short climb, maybe a minute or two minutes, but my climb, it was like 10 seconds or maybe it was a minute climb, but it, it, I got it to do it in a minute 10. So I got to put out less mm -hmm. power. I, I basically made this climb less steep, yep. but I went from the front of the group to the very back of the group. Mm -hmm. Then the downhill, I just went to the side and tucked yeah. went yep. right back to the front. Yeah. It's an awesome and tactic. Over. And if you don't have to be positioned right at the front of it for some strategic reason, then it's a, I don't know why you wouldn't use it. Also, you spin a lighter gear if you can when you're going up that climb. It may be tempting to kind of jam up it, and you'll see a lot of people doing that. But spin a lighter gear. Sea otters coming up. You're going to be doing the circuit race. I'm going to get destroyed. Are you doing the circuit race? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be so hard. Yeah. So that, in the threes. Yeah, yeah. in the threes. Yeah, so it's that, destroyed. That's my that's my favorite road race I've ever done. It's so much fun. Uh, it's really hard, but it's incredible because you're on one of the best race tracks in the entire world, uh, Laguna Seca. But that one has an extremely hard. Climb in it. And if you've ever played like a car racing game, you can go drive it and you probably don't think it's <laughs> very tough, but for a car. when you get, the, yeah, when you get there in real life, <laughs> when you get there in real life, it is so hard. Uh, and on that climb, you see it every single time, especially because, uh, it's sea otter. There are a lot of kids in that region. The NorCal high school cycling league is gigantic. And there are a lot of kids looking for as much stress as possible. So they join and they, they race, you know, cat three through five, whatever division they're in. And they're just insanely fast. They have power to weight ratios through the roof. And all they know is just go as hard as you possibly can. And mm -hmm. so they go up those climbs so hard every time. But if you just allow yeah. yourself to, you know, swallow the ego a bit and let yourself drop back and you'll come back on them. And probably it's going to be better. watching kids race. They, yeah. they just know no bounds. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. For it. <laughs> there's two different types of stack yeah. climbing too. There's one where you're doing it on purpose and there's one where you're like barely holding on. Yes. Yeah. And yeah you, it can be used that way too. But if you're barely holding on, it can be dangerous because then if it gets pushed over the top, yes, you're going to get kicked out. Yep. So you just might know. Probably too, we're going to make it anyway though. So exactly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're just doing whatever you can. But yeah. the other thing that I've seen um, just recently is uh, sometimes these, these climbs will happen and someone will sprint from the back to the front on the climb, mm. but then not push it over the top. Yes. Mm. There, there is no point, no point in that in doing that. You're just, you're making the hills steeper yep. and more tired. And you, I think what happens is you get overzealous. You're like, you, you've been waiting the whole time and it's not a hard race and here's your final hill and you're a climber. Yes. So you, you, you punch it, but then if you got, you got to push over the top, so yes. there becomes a gap or else it's pointless. The climb doesn't finish until you've gotten down to the same elevation you started at. Right. Like that's like yeah. what you should think of. Yeah. yeah if you want to, I mean, yeah, if you want to, you just got to, if you're going to be making people tired, you have to push the whole pace of the whole group totally. so that you make people tired. If you just are going from the back to the front, why? Yeah. Well, psychologically speaking, everybody expects a climb to be hard. So like, no matter what, everybody will expect that to be hard. So if then you make the descent, the part that they psychologically in their mind assume will be the easy part. If you make that hard or the flat yeah. section, yeah. if you make that hard, mm. then it mentally breaks somebody. There is a circuit race coming, no, a crit coming up that has hills that we're going to do. And Pete was telling me about this. It starts with like, you're like 8%, but then there's maybe like 200 yards at 2%. And then another kicker up, Ooh. those, those 200 yards at 2%. That's where the difference gets made. Yep. Yes. It's not in the start. As you drill it through that. Yeah. Yep. And that is where you're going to create 
separation. Yeah. Um, where mentally, to your mm. point, Jonathan, yep. it's you think that it's over and like I get to rest now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. if you are a climber, you're going to want to push through that section, and you'll totally. I mean, or if you're just, you'll drop me. To yeah. No question. Smart. So if you're yeah. ra- if you're racing against me, don't use this. Yeah. Don't uh, do that. But... We should we should go slow in that section. <laughs> yeah. So we can do the we can get a Strava KOM yeah, exactly. yeah, on the yeah. next one. Just rest KOMs up. matter way more than race results. Um, but they're at Sea Otter. It's like like clockwork. Every single race, you can expect people to just absolutely drill it and burn themselves up that the really hard climb and then they'll coast their way just for too long coming into the corkscrew thereafter Mm. um i think that i hit 56 miles an hour after that one year and that was and Nate weighs what forty more pounds. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I will hit, uh, hit the brakes. He said, <laughs> "No, I, I, sixty yeah. could happen." Oh, for sure. So, thanks, Coach. So, uh, when you come over the top of that, I I've found uh, relative success in at least getting everything split up into a small group by pushing hard over the top of that climb every time. I settle into a good tuck thereafter and down the corkscrew, which is the funnest thing in the world. And then, because uh, the the surface is just perfect. Yeah, it sounds scary. It's not. Oh, but it's not. No. The surface is the surface is incredible. It's like sandpaper. It's the grippiest asphalt you've ever been on, and it's so perfectly smooth. It's really cool. And uh, then thereafter, it really always it always separates it to like a group of five, and then it's like a basically a breakaway for the rest of the lap. Not too, you know. How long is the descent? It's really short. Especially in time, because it's quite steep. Well, I wonder too. In this situation, does it go right into the descent? Yes, it goes up and then drops. It basically flattens out for about twenty, thirty feet, and then drops down. Chad, how many times as a bigger rider that you get gapped off the uh, the, the back a little bit on the climb, but then you get it back on the, on the yeah? Yeah, that's oh, what yeah. I was going to say. Because whenever we talk about pushing over a climb, I always think of Boca races that you get up the climb and then they kind of level out. Mm-hmm. So, but often enough. You get up, climb, and then you're on a descent. Mm-hmm. So you can you can hurt yourself pretty good on the way up, knowing that you're going to recover on the way down. If a gap does develop and you're a heavier rider, you'll probably close it if you're a reasonably good descender. Yep. So yet another tactic to, yeah. to employ for a bigger rider. And finally, in terms of or sea otter in that circuit race, I find that everything gets dis- decided on the pit row climb. It's a much smaller climb, seems benign, but that's when things get decided. No, that's true. I mean, everyone's gearing up for the big climb. They don't see these other you know, yes. minor climbs that can actually prove really pivotal in how the race unfolds. How did yep. you do? Uh, I've gotten second, third, and fifth, and oh. fourth. What category? Uh, fours. And one, and then I think one race in fives. That's uh, the thing that scares me about this race is we had a pro mountain biker here, Trevor De Rousse. <laughs> yeah. I think he's, he was like at 5.3 watts per kilo. Yeah. Race cat five. Yeah. And did he get dropped? Like He got dropped. Yeah. <laughs> like, how does that happen? I know. Um, this is what you're talking about is sea otter is crazy. It's really hard. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like that cat, I, I think uh, one year that we did it in the cat fives. I think that I had like the sixth fastest lap and that was after all the P12s everybody else had done it that year. Mm-hmm. So that shows like in Cat 5 that's weird. Well that it's a huge mountain way. bike race. So <laughs> all these it. mountain bikers that are amazing go, I'm going to do a road race. Mm, yep. And they jump into it <laughs> they're and they're super strong. They're super strong. <laughs> yeah. You can just imagine a Cat 5 race being at 5.3 watts per kilo on a steep climb and then getting dropped. Oh yeah. Like imagine if you're a well, I think a normal what power weight would be 3. Which yeah, would be pretty good for a cat five. Compute. I don't know how you can do that. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> doesn't compute. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to get yeah. annihilated. There's also being them being mountain bikers. They really don't know how to ride in a group a lot of the time. That I get, but on a climber, yeah. everything slows down. How do you get tailed off? You must yeah. have done a ton of work before it. Yeah, or just sitting in the wind everywhere else. Yeah. You know, Maybe, you yeah. can yeah. try as much as you can, but when you don't, you know, you don't ride well in a group, it can it can hurt. So. That's a hard day. <laughs> 
Um, with that, we should probably uh, call it on this one. Sound good? Good. Cool. Uh, so thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, you can join us again next week. Uh, we'll be here recording. I'll actually be getting ready to head out for uh, a mountain bike race, and also uh, we'll be announcing a team that we're supporting uh, this year, a, ra a professional race team. Uh, it'll be pretty cool, uh, mountain bike team. So we'll be announcing that and hopefully getting some unique podcast content from that next weekend as well. Uh, it's going to be an exciting week to cover. We'll have race results to cover from us, but then we'll also have all the questions that you've submitted. Once again, trainerroadcom slash podcast, check out if you want to see this podcast as well, let it play in the background. You can go over to our YouTube channel. You can check out the race analysis videos. Uh, you can check out everything that we're doing at trainer road. Uh, we have some new exciting features that we'll be talking about in the very near future uh, that you'll be able to check out, which are going to be very helpful for all of us. You're going to like them. Uh, so plenty of exciting things to come. Stay tuned and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.